Hello! My name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I aim to be conscientious regarding student anxiety. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I aim to be mindful of work-life balance for myself and others. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Fest Beer, a Vienna-style lager from the KC Beer Company. Well, it smells like an Oktoberfest, is what it smells like. It smells um, hoppier than I'm used to. But it's not just hops. I, For as much as I don't like hops, I really like Oktoberfest beer. So I'm looking forward to drinking this, although it's a little early for Oktoberfest. Because remember, we're taping these even several weeks before you're listening to them, so... Uh. I don't know. Do I want to talk about this now or should I just save it till later? You got to save it. Gonna do it at the end of the episode. Okay. I didn't know what I was walking into. <laughs> That's all I'll say now. Yep. Okay. What are we doing today, man? This month, we're talking to two student researchers who collected data while teaching quantum mechanics lessons in K-12 settings. Later, we look at the connections between the approximate number sense of students and their math anxiety, or the lack thereof. And finally, we read a news piece about the most common ways that teachers fund the things they need for their classrooms. Here we go. For our first segment of the new year, we are excited to welcome a couple of guests to the show to talk with us about their efforts at doing some research uh, while they're still undergraduates. So we're going to welcome first Noella Costa. Welcome. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Noel Acosta is the beginnings of a physics teacher. He immigrated to the United States from Uruguay and has been through the ELL system and is now going back to help out other ELL students. Uh, we also have Ariana Anderson. Welcome. Hello. Uh, Ariana Anderson is a pre-service teacher in the UTeach program at UMass Boston. Uh, she emphasizes that there are different ways to teach, but everyone can learn. Uh, so welcome, both of you. How are you doing? We're doing great. I'm doing great. Doing good. Doing good. <laughs> I actually got to meet these two at the UTeach conference where you were sharing a poster on some research that you've done as an undergraduate. So uh, let's just start there. You want to tell us a little bit about um, what you were sharing at the conference? Um, yeah, sure. Um, what did we share on the conference? We had a poster about quantum mechanics and could we teach it to any great level? So basically, can we grab this big concept and big complicated concept and like shove it into like elementary kids students and middle schoolers and high schoolers <laughs> that was the idea of the poster uh why would you even want to try to teach quantum <laughs> mechanics to elementary school kids this sounds like a ludicrous uh endeavor like there are other things that they need to know before quantum mechanics right so why bother with something that is so advanced within the realms of physics and they they don't even, they, has the term physics even been contextualized to these elementary school kids? So why, what is the point? Like, why bother trying this? Well, whose idea was this? I guess personally on my end, it would be because I'm super interested in physics, right? That's personally. Um, but then the other thing is, um, according to Alyosha, which is a professor at UMass Boston, who's very into the quantum field stuff, um, He's been proposing the idea that 
Um, quantum mechanics is going to be a job opportunity for people who are going to be coming right out of high school. So companies are going to be looking into people who know some basic quantum mechanics as like similarly to like how a lot of people want people to know computer science. There'll be companies who would want people to have some basic understanding of quantum mechanics or quantum just in general. Yeah. Um, elementary schools tend to be more creative. They explore more. So like, when we went into each lesson, like, don't think we like had the same lesson plan, like for the elementary kids, we broke it down a little bit more. But the the idea was to see if they could have like an understanding of the quantum world, like after we were done with the lesson, which I think we, we got them to understand it. Yeah. When you approach a quantum problem, uh, most of the properties that you're used to, like the car is blue, then you you put it in a box and then you take the box out, the car is still blue, but in a quantum system that might differ. Like you put something in the box and then when you look at it again, it'll be a different thing. Um, so we, we can talk about the spins and stuff like that if you wanted to. Um, but uh, the idea is that if you start at an early age, start thinking about those concepts of like, well, really physics could be, it's a way of describing the world. And if you start describing the world and the really tiny stuff that really deals with the weirdness of quantum mechanics, right? If you're dealing with the weirdness at a young age, um, you're more you're more willing to accept a, a fact of what quantum mechanics is and then maybe work with that idea later on in your life. So me and Noel are total opposites, actually. So before I get on this project, I'm not going to lie, I hated physics. Absolutely hated it. <laughs> I, I hate, I hate it. Thanks. <laughs> Sorry, but I did. But um, when I got onto the lesson, like, and the, I think what helped me a lot with being able to understand the quantum world a little bit more than I did is that the way we taught the lesson. So we used um, quarters and we categorized it as like a um, warm up to show the like classical world, our world that we can see. And then we switched to the quantum world where you can't really see things. The way that we did the lesson actually ended up helping me understanding more. And I think that's why I was able to like be able to do this project and teach it in classes and help other kids understand it. Because before I was like, nope, anything he said about physics, I was like, no, I don't want to hear it. I'm all set. What was the target content, knowledge or skill you wanted them to develop as about quantum mechanics? And how did you assess whether your um, lessons had promoted that understanding or skills in the students you worked with? The content that we were trying to assess was um, how the properties of an object, well, we can't really say objects in the quantum world, they're not really objects, but the properties of a a thing, right? Like a particle in this case, or the properties of a button, like in our lesson, we use buttons to describe the quantum world, um, that the properties in the quantum world are not set in stone. Like you can't say this button is black because it's a black button. Um, if you take another measurement of that black button, or it'll still be, okay, hold on. I think like, so to synthesize that, we wanted to like show how in the classical world, we can see things and they don't change on us. But like in the quantum realm, we can see one property, but when we try to see two at the same time, it doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. You're going to see, so if we're doing black and white, usually black, but then you should try to see big or small, you're going to see big, but then you go back and you say, oh, this was a black. It might be white now. 
So that's kind of the idea behind that. Yeah, and so we uh, we read a paper from uh, Aliosa Hama and we, that uh, that you said to us that kind of described some of your lesson. And I remember seeing not just the I I feel a little weird imagining teaching students, you know, all is a lie and the world is an illusion. That's you know, that's, that's a little, <laughs> it's a little bit of a uh, abstract message, but there was a lot of math that I thought that I saw in analyzing the like probabilities and percentages distributed across multiple events. Um, so what was it like trying to incorporate some of those uh, fairly abstract math ideas uh, with the various groups of students you were working? I, I personally, when I was working with the little group and the middle schoolers, I did have trouble trying to explain that part of the lesson, right? Where the probability part, because we started collecting data, but then they started messing around the data. They weren't like super sure if it was 50-50. So one way of simplifying the math was also to draw it on the board. Something that you explained, like um, we started with um, buttons and then we measured the color. So how many were black and how many were white? So you have two boxes and you say, oh, there's a 50, 50%, and there's another 50%. And then you grab those black buttons and then we say, let's measure the color again. What is the probability of having the color of these black buttons? Ultimately, you wanted students to understand that the, about the impermanence of properties for quantum particles. How did you assess whether those students at each of those levels understood that concept? The way we assessed was at the end of the class, we had um, worksheets for them to fill out and it basically asked certain questions that they should be able to answer at the end of the lesson. Um, as I said, um, it was kind of hard to get them to fill out the lessons, but fill out the papers. But from some of them, I could see that students understand that a lot of them, it was kind of like, uh, I'm not too sure about it. And so we, since the since the lesson had to work with uh, students had to work in groups, um, each of them being set to different roles in the group. As like uh, one is the button emitter, like another like an electron emitter, right? Um, so the button emitter, someone was the measurer. Someone would look into it and like gave a recording, and then the observer, which would be the scientist in this case, would be the one that put down the markings of how many black or white buttons they had. And each group had a recorder right in front of them where we could hear what they were doing during the lesson, and then and then like the, at the end, we could hear their questions or uh, what kind of questions they were asking, what type of uh, reactions they had when we presented different um, solutions to the problem. Yeah. Um, part of the way that I did the recording process was based off of like some of the stuff that I learned when I interned at Nina Farber about like asking certain questions and answering it. I would listen to a recording and then I would write the students' answers and then I would categorize them. And then from the categories that I made, I, we ended up making a Venn diagram and then we put that together. Well, if, if you're sorting that, you, so you're listening to the, um, you're listening to the uh, recordings in order to sort the student comments to help you assess the effectivity of this lesson. In, in the recordings, we looked at the type of question. So a type of question would be something like, well, when does the button change color, for example? If a student said something like that, well, then I could definitely tell that they're engaged and they're thinking about quantum mechanics. I guess in the middle school example, it would be, um, Something that I that I wasn't that would tell me that they weren't getting it was like when they were talking about probabilities and they weren't really 
grasping that idea of it's a 50-50 chance, right? Yeah, the middle schoolers, you could definitely tell that they were not so engaged because um, like a lot of our recordings from the middle school, it cut off because they would turn off the recorders or they'd be like, some of them were like in the, the recorder and they're like, what is this? Ha 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 They're just like screaming in the recorder. So you could tell that we, we didn't really have them engaged. And I think to improve that, we could have like maybe did, we already had pretty small groups, but maybe even smaller groups and like more attention on each group. Like we probably need um, maybe one or two more teachers in the classroom to focus on each group and work with them. How many different middle school classes did you teach or did somebody teach that was included in your data set? It's still an ongoing lesson, but right now it, it was so far we have one um, elementary, one middle and two high school. And then as we go on, we'll have more in middle school and more in elementary. And so that was something that I felt some tension uh, as I was uh, just going through your poster was I know with qualitative methods, you know, you don't want astronomical in. I, I understand that. Um, but also I'm just remembering how different all of my different sections of classes were. And so if you were to go in and do a guest lesson in just one of my biology classes, you could get really different experiences just depending on which students happened to be in there that day and the mood they happened to have that day and whether, it, whether you know, it was a field trip later that day. I mean, you know, there's just so many reasons they could be different. And so many of them don't have anything to do with the lesson material. And so I, how or was it something that you had a chance to talk with your facilitator perhaps, uh, how are you navigating, you know, with only a small number of classrooms, uh, all of those idiosyncratic differences that you get just between groups of students that don't have anything to do with your lesson? In our program that we are in, you teach, we learn how to kind of work with what we have in the classroom. Like, so even if there's like different emotions, like different pe people are obviously going to be learning different ways. There's a lot of things going to be going on in different classes. But we, that's one big thing that we learned is to how to adjust to all the different settings that we're in. Because like when you become a teacher, you're going to have to. There are some different priorities between a, a practitioner, Ariana, as you described, like we have our students and we need, we need to find ways to reach them. We need to find t ways to teach them, uh, whatever the group may be. And that's 100% accurate. I am, I am on that boat. Um, but then compared with the needs of a researcher, where if your goal is generalization, then you need to have representation of all the different kinds of students you could have. Or if you want, you know, richness of context for the detail, then you need to make sure that you're describing the characteristics of the groups who you are teaching or where you are getting your evidence. And so those uh, needs are sometimes different, or at least what you're going to do to meet those priorities are sometimes different. So uh, like you say, we're just going out there to teach some guest lessons and we're trying to figure it out. Awesome. Like, awesome without asterisk, uh, compared to if, if I'm working with my researcher hat on and I'm trying to synthesize from my data and try to draw some conclusions, then I need to worry about some things that maybe are not of concern to me as a practitioner, but I do need to worry about if I'm going to be a researcher. And that's a, you know, it's really great that you both, I, I, I love that you both had a chance to, to think about that tension while you're still so early in your careers. I, you know, I, I teach at the UTeach site in Kansas, and I think it's a really, it's something that if you get a chance to experience it earlier in your career, then you're more likely to appreciate the role that research plays in our practice as classroom teachers, but then also it just better equips you to participate in that conversation and maybe even contribute back uh, as your careers develop. So I'm glad that you had a chance to work through it. It's hard. I don't have an answer for you. So so your, your hosting schools were, were different in lots of ways. It, 
it sounds like. Yes. So um, this is a this is a hypothetical, but I'm imagining, especially with the emphasis of our programs on guest teaching, uh, everybody can learn, as you say. Uh, if you were to go back out and uh, deliver a guest lesson in another middle school classroom in the same building, uh, have you thought about would would you make changes to the lesson? We could put more, like one or two more teachers in the classroom just so that they're all engaged all the time. Like, so there was three of us in that classroom, but when one of us couldn't get to a different group and we were all at other groups, then there would be a group over there and they would get distracted and stuff. So I would say like have more teachers in the classroom. Um, and I try to get a little bit like, I would, not, I wouldn't say freedom, but um, like that other classroom, I don't really think it was acceptable. Like while I was asking a student a question that she kind of cut him off and was like, oh, you need to be quiet. If she said it kind of rough, I was like, oh my gosh. Um, because um, even if students are screaming out answers sometimes, I think that's okay. Like obviously don't let the class run wild, but like screaming out answers sometimes is okay. It actually can help like, get to like a point in the lesson help other students out. So I don't really mind that. Yeah. And that kind of actually drove our conclusion of our poster um, a, a lot in terms of like what we concluded in, in our findings. We, we felt like we can definitely do quantum mechanics in any classroom, but the classroom has to have a culture of where you're asking and thinking outside of the box, right? Literally have to think outside the box, to like approach a quantum mechanics like question. How are you going to take what you've seen and draw some lessons that will make you better as an educator? How will you promote the uh, critical thinking, the agency of the students in your classroom, whether or not you're talking about quantum mechanics? How will you help get them ready for these kinds of discussions in your classroom and in future classrooms? Uh, while you're thinking, while you're thinking, I'm just going to tell you a sort of a contextualizing story for me, because uh, when I think about uh, I taught biology for a number of years before I came to KU. And I, I can remember some times where I would be like, students need to understand how to use the literature. I care about literature. I mean, that's why I do this show. I care about research. So, I, so students, should, students should be reading the literature. And then I leave my meeting and I go back into my classroom and I, sh and I take a piece of literature that my students could be reading and I synthesize it into a graphic that I put up on the projector and I don't ask my students to read the paper. And, it took, and there'd be times where it would take me a while to recognize that mismatch between what I believed my priority to be and this oversight that I had in my classroom. And I still have some of those. I've caught some of them, but I still have some of them. And so really what I'm asking is, uh, how are you going to use this experience to inform how you approach your classroom so that you make sure that you're helping your students be ready for when they encounter their version of this new event or this unfamiliar phenomenon? The thing is like, I don't. I don't know if I have an answer to it. I, I'm. I'm mostly afraid of making the same errors every year the teacher makes. And since I'm just starting, I'm mostly afraid of not doing inquiry-based teaching and just going on the easy way out, where it's like give me just answers and let's move on to the content, right? I'm mostly afraid of how to like how am I really gonna do it without <laughs> yeah, <it's hard. laughs> putting myself under like so much weight that it like crumbles the entire class right because i feel like it's a lot of work to put it into a class so i do want to do it but i have no idea how exactly since i'm a new teacher right um so i guess to kind of like maybe give some suggestions for that question um 
So this past summer, um, I taught a class. I co-taught a class, and so did Noel. He taught his own class. Part of, like, making sure you're doing inquiry in classes, like, making sure you correct yourself right away. Like, a lot of times I would find that, like, when I'm tutoring students one-on-one, I remember um, recently, actually, I was explaining this math problem. I was just like, oh, hey, do it on the board, right? And then he starts to do it, and I'm like, no, not that. And I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. Like, let's go with the way he's doing it, like, because that's the way he learns, so I shouldn't, like, try to adjust it to my own way. And he ended up understanding the problem better in the end. If you can't get it right away, just like, you know, reflect on it and try to be better tomorrow. Also, another thing I had noticed was like during the lessons I would teach and they would go on the board and they'd be like, we'd be like, oh, well, how'd you do it? And they'd be like, Ariana showed me. And I'd be like, oh, my God. (laughs) And it's not that I even showed them the answer. Like I asked questions and they end up coming up with a solution. But it's like, how do you get them? to um, explain it themselves on the board. And one thing I found, maybe this is not the greatest idea, they'd be like, Ariana helped me do it. And I'd be like, oh, I did help you, right? And they'd be like, yeah, but how did I help you? And they'd be like, oh, well, you asked me this and then I did that. And I'm like, oh, so you, you, you kind of got it yourself, right? I'm like, yeah, so go ahead and explain that on the board. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, I think that's a great way to do it. Some some things I would say about uh, some comments you made earlier. Uh, you're afraid that you've got all this weight on you and you're afraid of doing it wrong. And you have got to be at peace with that. You are doing it wrong. You've just <laughs> got to be at peace with that. You can't be afraid of doing it wrong. You have to bravely and boldly go and do it wrong because it's too much to carry uh, it's too much to carry your first year. It's too much to carry your eighth year. It's too much to carry your 10th year. Um, because the more that you figure out how you can, you know, oh, I can do this now and I can do this now and I can do this now, your ability to see other things that you have to improve also increases. So you you never get to this place where you're like, I got it now. I can stop growing. That's never going to happen. So come to peace with doing it wrong so that you can actually come to peace with improving yourself so that you just keep getting better. Cause it's important. It's, it's, it is the mistakes matter. Let's not, you know, let's not make any bones about it. The mistakes matter. Um, wouldn't it be a shame if it, it was, if it was irrelevant, whether we walked in there and did a good job or not, but what we do is important. I'm right. I'm right there with you. Yeah. Uh, I really appreciate you both coming on. Uh, this is some really thought-provoking work that you've uh, shared with us and have given me some new things to consider for what uh, I'm doing in my classroom. This is better with all of you. For our next segment, we are turning to math and math anxiety. And so we read, when approximate number acuity predicts math performance, the moderating role of math anxiety. Uh, that's by Braham and Libertus. Uh, was published in 2018 in PLOS One. Uh, as the title suggests, this paper uh, explores two factors that may affect math performance. Approximate number acuity. This paper explores how well students perform mathematically 
in light of their approximate number sense and their math anxiety. We've got to ask, how do they measure math performance? What is their approximate number sense? And what are we talking about? And how do they measure math anxiety? So let's get to the most foreign concept first, for, which is against everything I know pedagogically. Um, approximate number acuity, approximate number systems. That was a construct that they were uh, measuring and uh, uh, correlating with math performance. What is that? Yeah, that's kind of a fun juxtaposition to what we were talking about a couple of months ago when we were looking at uh, how schema gets constructed and whether or not the nodes of the schema could be separate from your um, sensory experience. Because really, the ANS is an amodal mechanism for evaluating numbers, which is yeah. like the exact opposite. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, but what's interesting is that it seems to be a nascent uh, method for doing that because it's something present in toddlers and uh, apparently observed in mammals, lower brain development mammals. So th what is this about? The approximate number system or approximate number sense? What is that about? Yeah, it's about uh, determining a relative size between two things, two quantities, two numbers. Uh, it happens quickly and it's, uh, it's, it's without symbolic logic. It's without counting. It's this other thing when people measure that, usually what they do is they present two images for a very short period of time, like 150 milliseconds or something like that, like a fraction of a second. And so there might be 20 dots on one side and 15 dots on the other side. So they flash this image for a really for a quick moment, and then they ask the participant to evaluate as quickly as accurately as possible which side has more dots. And so if you do this quickly, you're using a different piece of your mathematical schema, different, uh, a different mechanism for mathematical reasoning than if I were to just sit there and count dots. It's a completely different way to try and make that determination. It happens so fast. You kind of have to use your gut. You kind of have to go with instinct. Well, I really didn't get to see all of them, but I'm pretty sure there were more yellow ones than blue ones. And so I'm going to go with yellow. And uh, they, they um, varied the way these, these groups were presented. So sometimes the dots were shuffled together. Sometimes they were separated from each other. Sometimes they were shown at the same time. Sometimes they were shown at different times. Just which had more, the blue dots or the yellow dots? Well, and you say that's how they assess. And I think that's worth pointing out because uh, this could be confused with speed of computation or right. speed of determination. That's not really what it is. We assess it by making a quick determination. But this, if I'm understanding it correctly, is really about uh, like intuition. It's really about yeah. um, reasoning uh, through these problems. And so it gives us a window into people's ability to make predictions for answers to problems or to intuit mechanisms for solving problems, which is an important way that, uh, that we help students learn math mathematics, especially, um, especially while they're still developing nascent understandings of mathematics. We, we there isn't enough time for them to count. They can't count the dots. They are on the screen for, uh, they said 750 milliseconds. So not a second. So it's not it's not symbolic number sense. It's a different number sense. It's the approximate number system. So that was one of the things they assessed for these students, these 86 students. So their question was, does this ANS uh, process as in these participants, how does it correlate with or how does it lead to 
their ability to perform mathematical calculation, uh, how does it lead to their math fluency, how does it lead to their uh, ability to succeed on applied problems, and those were all separate measures uh, that they, they collected from these participants as indicators of math ability. So they said this ANS is getting measured, and these three measures of math ability, calculation, math fluency, and applied problems uh, are things that we're looking at, and so we, we know ANS matters for some of these measures of math abilities. That's something that the existing literature established. But they're, they were also looking at one other thing and how it might also affect uh, these math abilities. They looked at also math anxiety and how it might affect these three measures of math ability. So the calculation measurement was just what you think. They took a test where they did a bunch of math. The fluency measurement was very similar, except that was timed. So math fluency was... Uh, calculations that were timed, and then applied problems were contextualized, they were word problems, there were graphical components, uh, and they were uh, not, not decontextualized math, but in-situ math. They then gave the participants a survey about their own anxieties, or lack thereof, with math. They wanted to do that after the performance uh, measurements because they didn't want to preload the students with anxiety by thinking about how scared they are about math before they had to deal Which with it. Which was wise. So good job, researchers. I liked that about what they did yeah. out of the gate. Good job. So what did they find? Well, actually, before what did they find, what did they expect to find? And I thought that was interesting because I found that to be very um, persuasive. I thought, yeah, that makes total sense. Um, that individuals with poor approximate number systems or individuals with poor approximate number sense were they expected to have higher math anxiety because if at a young age you have trouble determining values of groups of numbers, that's going to contribute to having trouble manipulating or uh, ranking those groups of numbers, which is going to lead to trouble interpreting what those numbers mean at a symbolic level, which is going to lead to trouble doing calculations, which is going to lead to a self-efficacy uh, potential crisis, which will make you identify as bad at math, which will make you afraid of math. So there was a narrative proposed that a low ability to have approximate number sense is likely going to correlate with uh, math anxiety. What did they find? The anxiety is independent of the number sense. Right. Those two things are not related. I got to get it off my chest. I, I keep looking for a way to make it like fit into the narrative. But, but it's the only a... thing I can think about. There's this other thing that's not even what the study is about, but it jumped out at me in the table. And so it's, I got to get it off my chest. Yeah, let's do um, it. So they also looked at um, a measure of each participant's working memory span, and they looked at uh, how many previous math courses did you have just to be thorough in their data collection. And it really struck me that um, in their modeling, they looked at correlations between everything. Does yeah. everything correlate with everything? Which does, totally does makes sense anything to correlate with anything? Uh, that's the better way to say it. But the which totally makes sense to me. Is that's that's a pretty typical way to do it. And so what jumped out at me was I went down that first column of math courses because that's what I care about. Is yeah. Does taking math courses matter for these these things? Because I'm a teacher and that's what I want to do is help people get better at things. And what I noticed was there's a significant correlation between math courses and their score on calculation, but not 
for their ability, their score for math fluency or applied problems. And I think that that says things like I think yeah. that, that I think that that means something. I highlighted that finding, too. So let's let's break that down. The only significant predictor of calculation ability was the number of mathematics classes taken. Their abstract, their approximate number sense is not correlated with higher calculation ability. Their anxiety is not correlated with lower calculation ability. The only significant predictor of calculation ability was the number of mathematics class taken, which means we get better at what we do regardless of how we feel about it. And which suggests that what they do in math courses is calculation tests. Yeah. And that makes me kind of sad, although it's worth noting that there was a suggestive uh, correlation for math anxiety and calculation. Uh, it didn't hit their the more meaningful levels of significance as they defined them, but there was a maybe. Um, so, but, but, the, but I think that that says something important, at least for these participants, about what they're getting in their math courses. And that wasn't at all what the study was about, but I think that's something that is in there. Uh, I, true, and I think that's something to consider. I think uh, what they did find for anxiety was that it did not affect their math capacity unless the task was timed. It did affect their math fluency. So how quickly they can come to and work through those calculations was impeded with someone with high anxiety. And that is consistent with what we know about how cortisol inhibits interactions between the hippocampus, the cerebral cortices, and the frontal cortex where all of these thoughts are occurring. So if you've got anxiety, you've got cortisol, you're inhibiting the work of those parts of the brain, you're, it's going to take you a long, longer to get through those kinds of uh, thought processes. If you get through them at all. If you get through them at all. Uh, and that's, that relates to, there was uh, some conversations going on in the broader education sphere about the role of time tests, especially in math, which is actually what drew me to this paper. I am, I think that time tests serve no good. I, I think that predefining a time limit for all students before they take a test does only harm. That's what I think with the currently available evidence. But if there's other evidence to contradict that, I need to know about it. Right. And so that was some of what the conversation was. And I think this is further evidence to suggest that adding a time constraint differentially affects students and the students most affected are the ones who are experiencing high math anxiety. Yes. There's a, I am more affected by whether or not somebody experiences anxiety yes. from that timing. Absolutely. Yes. Than the stuff that I actually in, want to be measuring. In the context of time, the most important value is the anxiety. The presence or absence of the anxiety. In the context of fluency, the anxiety is king. And now for something completely different. Okay, our third segment is a, a new segment. It's a new format because sometimes we talk about news, but I'd like to be more intentional this season about considering news topics that come across that come across the wire as we tape our episodes. So we are doing Hot Off the Presses, which is a news story from Ed Week. This was published yesterday uh, called How Do Teachers Fund Their Classrooms? Six Takeaways. And so they had some, uh, some survey results that they collected and that they wrote a little bit of news about. Finding number one, despite crowdsourcing, 
which is a hot trend talked about, teachers are more likely to spend their own money in their classrooms. The teacher median spent out of pocket was $338. The national average put it at $479. And this out of pocket expense does not cover all the perceived needs of 50% of classrooms. Uh, yeah, so this this article was really, it felt to me like it was focused on, some people are saying crowdsourcing is the answer, it's the future, everybody go on donor choose and all of our problems are solved. And so this seemed to be sort of a, a, a news person's analysis of how broadly accepted are crowdfunding techniques for trying to fund classroom needs. And so these couple of charts they've generated from these survey results uh, suggest that actually crowdsourcing, most people don't do it still. Right. The vast majority of teachers report they're still spending their own money. And that's not coming as a that's not coming as a newsflash to anybody who is a teacher, sadly. Uh, I thought it was interesting that only one percent of respondents said everything I need is provided. I thought that was interesting. That's the smallest group in this entire survey is saying I have everything I need. Have you ever have you ever crowdfunded anything? Okay. If they mean if you mean used a, an internet source where strangers gave me money, I'm going to say no. Mm -hmm. I guess it's, I'm, I guess I've done fundraising. I've done traditional fundraising. Uh, and my brain kind of says this money came from people that weren't me. And I kind of put them in the same category, but it's not what we colloquial, what is colloquially referred to as fun, uh, crowdfunding. No, I haven't done that. Yeah. I'm trying to like donors choose is, uh, yeah. according to this survey is still by far the leader in, um, in crowdfunding sources for teachers uh, yeah gofundme is another one um adopt a classroom is another one i've seen a plenty of donors i've donated on donors choose before i actually funded my first 3d printer through donors choose cool although um interestingly i was the top donor on that project <laughs> by far um congratulations because <laughs> patterns overlap so of course uh, of course that is what it is teachers get more from grants currently and traditional fundraisers that crowdfunding sites and only a third of crowdfunding projects get funded. So as, as much as it might be hyped, more don't get the money they need than get the money they need. So if I'm trying to ponder shoulds coming out of a news story like this, I feel like there are kind of two. Because this suggests that the crowdfunding space is still underutilized if we accept the yeah. value of crowdfunding spaces. And I think I am. I think I am okay with accepting the value as they are right now. Uh, what do you think about that? Would you use Donors Choose if you had a project you wanted to fund tomorrow? If I wanted it funded tomorrow, I wouldn't use Donors Choose. Like I'd, tomorrow you would go rob a project. Or something. <laughs> if it had to be funded tomorrow... Uh, it had to be funny tomorrow. You cut a check. Yeah, like that's so. that's I honestly I think that's the number one reason. Oh yeah, you're, you're absolutely of, right. Of why the majority of teachers use their own resources is because time constraints. Like yeah. I would pay. I I have said this out loud. You're, you're right. To bookkeepers, I would pay X dollars to have this problem go away right now. You're absolutely one hundred percent right. And the thing is, um. Like you need imagination, you need foresight, and you need to be responsive. And like hitting the sweet spot between those things is really tough. And I, I'm okay with saying I don't think I think most teachers don't hit that sweet spot. There are people that plan everything out through the school year and they don't deviate, and everything is going to be the way they imagine it, which I don't think is ideal pedagogy. But guess what? 
if you know the financial needs that you're going to have eight months in advance, you're more likely to get them met. Uh, on the other hand, if something happens in your classroom, your kids inspire you to do something amazing. You're like, oh my gosh, it's just in time right now. Tomorrow, I've got to buy 24 avocados. I just have to do it. Well, I'm not going to, there's, I got to go buy 24 avocados. I got to, I got to write that check. Myself. I don't have time for purchase order. I don't, I don't have yeah, time I, for a grant. No. So there's, there's, you know, there'd be great if we could always hit that sweet spot, but, but we don't. And the thing is, is that we're inspired to do what we can for our kids. So when those opportunities to say, now is the time to strike, I got to get this resource for tomorrow, teachers are willing to carry that burden. And frankly, there was, there was a time when I was in the classroom when um, teachers were trusted with that decision-making process. I had a P card for a number of years in my high school classroom, and I had the authority to, if I needed something, go out and buy it. And I didn't have to ask a single solitary soul. Now I had to be accountable for those decisions after the fact. I had to be able to say, I spent this $49 on this thing for this lab and it had this benefit and it fits into our department goals in this way. But I didn't have to give, I didn't have to have anybody's permission ahead of time. And so I could make those choices and it was supported by the school budget. And I think that that was a really important and effective and respectful way to go about making those sorts of decisions, especially as I taught some of those more complicated courses where making those predictions ahead of time was difficult and expensive. Like making that choice, but buying a $150 lab kit the night before we needed it was an unreasonable burden to place on a teacher. Uh, that policy went away. Yeah. And that's not the world I live in now. Oh, nor I. And so I think that's a hard line to walk. I know not everybody used that kind of policy responsibly, which is why it went away. Yeah. And so that's a hard line to walk. But I know that I really appreciated having that, that liberty, that, that respect while I had it. Intent matters. So I think it's time to ask, how was the beer? The smell was a warning sign. I got to tell everybody out here that I, I, I don't know what came over me that I decided to buy a lager instead of a stout or a porter or even a, even a black lager. You know, I yeah, could have, I could have called me. He called I me. Know, what was I know. What was I doing? He told me he was getting a lager and I was honestly what? speechless. Yeah. What was I doing? I got to tell you, I was just transfixed by the nice little dark amber label and the, the box. I just, I don't know. I was like, also KC beer company has got like a, a, a deal where they, um, they have music weekly in the summer and I'm involved in a community orchestra that uh, performs and we're trying to, to set up a, a performance with them and, or at least negotiate for that. So I just had some like positive KC beer company in my heart and I was looking for things and I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. I don't know. I don't know anything about anything. So I just picked up this uh, Fest beer Vienna style lager. Now I'll tell you, I saw how yellow it was when I poured it and I was just terrified. I was just scared out of my wits and I smelled it and it smelled hoppier than I, than I liked. I was, I was too afraid. It, it, it's not my favorite. I'm going to be honest, but it has a nice sweet foretaste. Like it has an early sweet taste that I enjoy. And then at the end, when you start having that hops aroma and you start getting that flavor that I don't like, it wasn't very strong. But I have a soft spot for Oktoberfest style beers. Uh, I don't know if I have fond memories of Oktoberfest. I do. Um, and so 
I like the things you've described. The hoppiness, if it was any more hoppy, would be a huge deal for me. It'd be a big plummet in my quality of life. But uh, I just do not mind that little bit of hoppiness at the end because it's just, it it feels feels robust. It feels burly. I'm like, oh, all right, I, I'm all right with this. It's a little rough, but it's supposed to be rough. Yeah, this is okay. Let's go dance. Uh, that's kind of how I experienced this. And so I had a good time. Thanks. Thanks, you, Casey Beer Company and Lawrence Woodruff. It's an accident, but I, you know, I've made worse mistakes. We, we make big changes at season turnover. And oh, no, I don't change. want this to be <laughs> the new norm of the season three, all loggers. Uh, thanks for tuning in. This has been our first episode for season three. We had a lot of fun taping it. We hope you enjoy it. If you want to read any of the references we've made, you can find them on our website, twopintplc.com, or you can find you can find me on social media. Tell us what you want us to read next month. Tell us what topics matter to you, because uh, we can't wait to do this again with you in October. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well. <laughs>